You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn to the book of Philippians chapter 1, the end of the chapter, and we'll read together from verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 4. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we bow before your word because it is our sole rule and sole authority for life and for practice. We acknowledge that this revelation comes from you. It is given to us for your glory and for our change, our transformation, our edification. And we ask this morning that as we look at it, that your spirit would be present to teach through your word us what we are to learn and what we are to have this morning. We pray that what we receive would not be the words of a mere man, but your word as we hear your voice in the text of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'm just going to dispense of any sort of interesting introduction which should catch your attention and give you a reason to listen to me. And I know some of you are thinking to yourselves, how is this different than any other Sunday? Well, this Sunday it's actually purposeful because I want to jump right back into verse 27 where we left off last week. We only got halfway through a sentence because we ran out of time before we ran out of text. And I don't want that to happen again today because we're going to be finishing verse 27 and starting into or finishing verse 27 and verse 28 this morning. And I want to make sure that we have ample time for that because there's so much to consider in these verses and they are so loaded. So just by way of reminder, I just want to give you basically a couple statements to remind you of where we were at and where we left off last week. We saw in verse 27 that the Apostle Paul has changed his focus ever so slightly. You remember that? He's now focusing on the Philippians' conduct. He has been talking about his own circumstances and his own situation, his own mindset and perspective, and now he switches ever so slightly and starts to address that of the Philippians, and he wants them to adopt the same mindset that he has. And although he has changed his focus, he has not changed his theme. The theme is still the gospel, which is the purpose of Christian living, to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's verse 21. So the central idea of all of chapter 1 is the centrality of the gospel, and thus the centrality of Christ in all things. And then we looked at the irony of that word only at the beginning of verse 27. Only conduct yourselves, just conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And 
Of course, we recognize right at the outset that there is far more by way of application to those words than initially meets the eye. Because summed up in that word only and in conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is all of the New Testament imperatives and commands regarding our behavior, our ethics, our conduct, and our spirit. And we saw that the word conduct, which was particularly meaningful to the Philippians, means to conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of your citizenship. So just as we have a citizenship that is in heaven, we ought to conduct ourselves or behave ourselves in a way that does not bring reproach upon our citizenship, or that is to say on heaven or on Christ or on God or on His Word. And then the reason that Paul is asking the Philippians to do this is because whether he remains absent from them or whether he does come and see them and his desire is to come and see them, but he understands in the providence of God that may not happen, he wants to hear of them that they are progressing in the faith. That was the command to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now today we're going to look at what I told you last week were the three characteristics of somebody who walks worthy in the gospel. We see this at the end of verse 27. Paul says, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's the first characteristic. That you are striving with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the second characteristic. And then verse 28, steady. In other words, he says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that from God. So standing firm, striving together, and steady in the face of opposition. Those are the three things that the Apostle Paul wants to see in the lives of the Philippians that would indicate to him that they are living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Standing firm, striving together, and steady. So let's look at each one of those three. First, standing firm. The Apostle Paul says, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in the gospel. Now the Apostle obviously understands that they're facing physical suffering. Look at chapter 1, verse 30. They were experiencing the same afflictions, the same sufferings, that they had seen in Paul, and now they heard to be in Paul. Just as Paul was suffering for the gospel, so these Philippians in the city of Philippi were facing very real physical danger for their faith. I think it was something probably akin to what Paul and Silas experienced when they went to Philippi and preached the gospel. Do you remember the opposition that they received? And then they got the the lashings in the public marketplace, and then they were thrown into the stocks and put into the prison, and that's where the Philippian jailer got saved. That same type of suffering, Paul says, that you saw in me and now here to be in me, that's what they were facing. Very real physical danger. Also very real spiritual danger. We find out in chapter 3, verse 2, that there were false teachers who were creeping in and threatening to undo the life of the church in Philippi. So they're they're faced with physical hardship, physical affliction, but also a very real spiritual danger to the core of their faith in these false teachers who were attacking the church. And Paul says, in the face of all of that, I want you to steko. The word means to stand strong. It was used of a military officer, a military sentry who would hold his ground against opposition and not yield one inch. If you had a, a military man who was given a post and he stood his ground and he did not yield an inch, he would be said to have stood firm, to stand firm, to stand in one place and not give in to opposition, no matter what it cost. And a good soldier would give up his life before he gave up his turf. And that's what Paul is saying here. It was also used figuratively of people who stood strong in their convictions. You meet somebody who has strong moral convictions and they stand there and they don't compromise their integrity. 
They don't compromise their honesty. They don't compromise their convictions. But they stand firm in their convictions. That's how that word was used to describe somebody who stood in their convictions and did not yield, not for one instant. That's what Paul wants them to do. Stand firm like a military man who does not yield his ground. Not in the face of physical danger, not in the face of spiritual danger, but to stand. And isn't that not what Paul modeled himself? We saw that in the book of Acts, did we not? You ever see the Apostle Paul back down from one thing in the book of Acts? Never. And one of the things that we admired in the man was his ability, his his bulldog-like ability to grab onto something and hold onto it and to be tenacious and to never let go and to never back down and to never compromise. And even in the face of hostility and attacks from his countrymen and even under the threat of death himself, the Apostle Paul never once backed down. But he stood boldly and said, look, all of this is about the, my trial is about the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he never once backed down in his convictions, moral or spiritual or otherwise. You ever met somebody who has squishy convictions? You met them? And you never know where they stand on anything because it's determined by whoever they happen to be hanging around with that day. And somebody asks them to do this, that, or the other thing and they go along with it, along with it just because that's the flow. That's where everybody's going. They have no convictions whatsoever. They're willing to sell their integrity. They're willing to back down. They're willing to shut up or stand down or be quiet and, and, and compromise whatever it would be for the sake of ease or comfort for themselves. That's the opposite of what Paul wants in the Philippians. I say this to kids who are here who are in public school, particularly teenagers and even teenagers who are homeschooled. You need to listen to this too. But listen, I regret, and I cannot express to you in words the amount that I regret having not stood for my convictions in high school. If you have the opportunity to stand strong in your workplace, in your school, in the classroom, you do it because you will always regret backing down on your convictions. You will never regret standing strong in your convictions. Never once. I never once regretted, and the few times that I did stand up in high school, I never once regretted standing up. But I regret every single time that I backed down and caved in and didn't stand firm. The Apostle Paul wants the Philippians to stand firm. And look what he says. I want you to stand firm in one spirit. In one spirit. Now, some people take that to mean the Holy Spirit. I want you to stand strong in the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think the Apostle Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit in the text. I think he's talking about the human spirit. He's talking about the human attitude, the human mindset, the the unity that exists amongst people. You are to be of one mind, be of one thought, be of one purpose, one direction, one aim, one ground. That's to be where you stand. You stand firm in one spirit, in one heart, in one attitude. If you look over at chapter 2, verse 4, we just read that a couple seconds ago where the Apostle Paul says, uh, sorry, verse 3, back up, verse 2. I'll keep going. Eventually I'll get back to the text I started with. Verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What he is concerned about is in the Philippian church that there would be a disunity amongst people and that they wouldn't be striving together or standing firm together but that they would all have their own agendas and their own thoughts and their own directions. Everybody wanted to go do their own thing. And I think that was a problem in Philippi. You know what happens when that goes on in the church? You get to the point where you need correction like you read about over in chapter 4, verse 2. Look at that. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask also that you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the Gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And here the Apostle Paul is actually preparing them. 
to receive that very mild rebuke. There were two women in the church who could not get along. Maybe they were arguing. I don't know if they each had their own agenda or they just couldn't get together. They couldn't stand to be in the same room together. They weren't living in harmony. And that once that begins in a church, then it's just downhill to division and destruction and disunity and disharmony. And the Apostle Paul says, I want you to stand firm together in one spirit, intent on one purpose, with one mind going one direction. Now why is that, why is the attitude of the spirit in which we stand important in helping us stand? Why do you think it's important to be all together on the same page? Does it do a church any good to have a certain contingent that's heading this direction and thinks this is the best thing to go and they're off doing this and this ministry and they got this goal and to have another contingent who's off doing this thing with this goal and they've got this purpose and a whole other group is off doing this thing with this goal and they've got this purpose? Is that a good thing to have in a church? Never a good thing to have in a church. You know why? Because it's a lot easier to stand firm together than it is to stand firm apart. There's strength in numbers. And when you're weak, I'm strong. And when I'm weak, you're strong. And when you're down, I can encourage you. And I'm down, you encourage me. And there's a oneness and a unity and a purpose. And there's times when all of us need to get together and grab those that have fallen down and grab those that are losing their way and say, here, this is where we're going. This is what the purpose is. This is where we're headed. And so kind of get up and let's go together. But if everybody's doing their own thing off in their own direction, you can't have any kind of unity of purpose or oneness of mind. And if we're all standing separately, we're all going to fall together. That's just the way it is. You can't stand firm by yourself. I'm afraid that there are some who call this church home, who gather here every Sunday, and they honestly think that they can stand firm in the faith without any conviction or any loyalty or any vital connection to this church as a body of Christ. And they've bought into the lie that you can just show up here and have nothing to do with anybody else in the body throughout the whole rest of the week, and that it, as a result of that, that you can actually stand firm in the faith. And you think you can do it alone. You think you don't need anybody else. You don't need any vital union. You don't need any fellowship. You don't need any direction. You don't need any accountability or encouragement. And you can't do that. You absolutely cannot do that. You're alone, you're vulnerable, and you're deceived. If you think that. You have to stand firm in one spirit, in one mind, intent on one purpose. There must be a unity amongst the people of God in standing strong in the things of the faith. And without that, we all fall. We all fall together. Second, we have to strive together. Standing firm, and second, striving together. Look what the Apostle Paul says. I want to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together. Notice the oneness, the unity again. Verse 27, in one mind striving together for the faith of the Gospel. The word striving there. His striving together was the word soon athleo. Soon meaning together. And athleo from which we get our word athletics or athlete. And it meant to compete in something. And it was primarily used of a wrestler or it was used of a gladiator. And it really has gladiatorial overtones, the word does. It means literally to fight or to contend or to wrestle or to pursue something, to compete for something. But notice that the Apostle Paul says we are to compete together instead of against each other. You notice that? Christians are to compete for things together. We're to gladiate together for the faith of the Gospel, contending together, not contending separately, not each one of us fighting our own battles, but all of us fighting the same battle, and we are to contend or to fight to, to compete together. That's the opposite of what you think when you think of the term competition. 
If I say to you, you're supposed to athleto, you're supposed to compete, then the thing you want to do is look at the person next to you and say, okay, this is my opponent. But in the church, it's not that way. You're not competing for yourself against the person in the pew next to you or behind you or in front of you or whoever's on the stage. We compete or we athleto together. So we strive together, and that striving together is with one mind. And notice the oneness again. We stand firm in one spirit and in one mind. We compete together for the faith of the gospel. What is it that we strive for? The faith of the gospel. And listen, I don't want anybody to understand this. There is no other legitimate arena in which we can give our efforts and our passions and our drive than in competing together for the sake of the gospel. Do you notice what the Apostle Paul does not say? I want you to strive together for political reform. He does not say, I want you to strive together to make your city a better city. I don't want you to strive together to bring about some sort of social justice. We're not to strive together to make our country a better country. A lot of Christians are worried about making pagans more moral and making the United States a better place to go to hell from. We're not to do that. We are to strive together for the sake of the gospel. And everything else we are involved in is a waste of our energy, a waste of our efforts, if it is not geared to the proclamation and the promotion of the gospel. Everything else is just arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It's amazing the amount of people that put their energy and their efforts into all of these things which are just window dressing. We have entire organizations, entire movements in this country that are simply geared to making this country a better country to go to hell from. And all of the lost are perishing. What a waste. Strive together for the sake of the faith of the gospel. And friends, that not only describes the sphere of our striving, but that phrase also describes the type of unity that you and I are to have. Is the Apostle Paul describing a unity at all costs? It's a unity in what? The faith of the gospel. That's the sphere of our unity. That's the type of unity we have. It's not just everybody get together and let's just nullify truth and pretend that these doctrinal issues don't matter and pretend that the doctrinal issues don't exist. That's not biblical unity. Biblical unity is saying this is what the gospel is and if we agree on this, then we have unity. That's what biblical unity is. It's not all of us are thinking the same way about everything. You say, Jim, you're talking about oneness of spirit and oneness of mind. Does that mean I have to agree with you on everything? No. I don't care whether you agree with me on the timing of the rapture or the nature of the kingdom or the nature of baptism or a hundred different things. If you and I agree on the gospel, then we have oneness of mind and we can strive together for the faith of the gospel. Doesn't mean we all have to like the same kind of ice cream, dress, dress the same, like this same type of music or the same style of worship or the same seating arrangement in a church or whether we have bright lights or dim lights or whether we meet in a gym or a building or a house. The type of Bible translation that we use, none of those things matter in the end. Whether you root for the same football team that I do, I wish. But we can't have that kind of unity amongst Christians. We have the freedom and the grace to disagree with each other and disagreeing with each other is a blessing. I'm glad you don't like the same team I do. I'm glad we disagree on a hundred things. That's a good thing. But listen, in the area of the Gospel, there is zero room. Zero room for disagreement. Not one iota. Not one shadow. Not one sliver. You and I cannot disagree about anything on the Gospel. Because the Gospel is a very narrow thing. And if one of us has it wrong, one of us is wrong. 
And if one of us disagrees with the other on what the gospel is and how somebody is saved, then one of us is wrong enough to go to hell for eternity because there's no room for viewing it different on that. You can't have one Christian who says, well, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and another Christian who says, I believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. You can't have one Christian who says, I think it's faith plus baptism, and another Christian who says, I don't think it's just faith alone. You can't have one Christian who says, I think it's Jesus plus Muhammad plus Buddha plus any New Age or yoga that I want to add to it, and another Christian who says, I think it's just Jesus and faith in Jesus. You and I can't agree on it, disagree on any of those things. It's a very narrow thing with the Gospel. Everything else we can disagree on. But we strive together for the faith of the Gospel. It's the one thing that unites us. It's the one thing that we have in common. And if somebody doesn't agree on the Gospel or somebody doesn't have the Gospel right, you and I have nothing in common with them. Nothing whatsoever. There's nothing else that we can get together on but the Gospel. That's why we don't link arms with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Catholics and all the social conservatives and get involved in all of these functions in our community. There's a lot of things that we can agree on with Mormons and Catholics and Episcopalians and conservative Methodists and probably the few things we could agree on with the Presbyterians, but we don't get involved with them. Why? We don't agree on the Gospel. The Gospel is the one thing that defines who and what a Christian is. And so that's the thing that we strive for. Standing firm, striving together, I want you to notice the third thing, steady. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents. The word alarmed there, the word alarmed there was a word that was used to describe a horse that would see something that was totally harmless and bolt and throw its rider. That's the word. It was used to describe an uncontrollable stampede of horses. The Apostle Paul is essentially saying, I don't want you to be spooked like a horse at the first sign of opposition and bolt out the door. And be uncontrollable in your panic to get out of there. I don't want you to be alarmed by your opponents. They were facing real opponents, real physical danger, real spiritual danger. But the Apostle Paul says, don't panic. Don't lose your, don't lose your cool. Be steady in the face of opposition. And when you're steady in the face of opposition, the Apostle says, that is a sign of destruction for them and of salvation for you. I want you to look at this phrase because it's loaded with meaning. Your steadiness in the face of opposition is a sign. And the word doesn't, it's not the same word used of signs and wonders in the New Testament. It's a word that's only used four times in the New Testament. And it means proof or evidence. This is a sign. This is a proof or an evidence of two things. Number one, destruction for your enemies. And number two, salvation for you. When you're steady in the face of opposition and when unbelievers persecute you and you suffer affliction and you suffer persecution from unbelievers, that in itself is a proof or an evidence of something. Two things. First, it is evidence of their destruction. The fact that they oppose you and the fact that you suffer affliction from their hands is evidence that they are headed for destruction. You ever thought of it in those terms? The very fact that somebody opposes the Gospel is proof from heaven that they are going to face eternal destruction. And the word destruction is the word that was used of the eternal damnation of the wicked. They're going to face eternal destruction. You want proof of it? They oppose the Gospel. That's the proof. Their opposition to the Gospel, their hostility toward you is evidence that they're unbelievers. They're unsaved. Look what the Apostle Paul says. It's also evidence of your own salvation. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was writing, chapter 1 I should say, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica. 
Paul planted the church in Philippi first. Right after he left Philippi, he went to the city of Thessalonica. Planted a church there, and the Christians there suffered just like the Christians in Philippi suffered. And the Apostle Paul wants to sort of encourage the Thessalonian Christians, and he writes in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Listen to this. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, that's salvation, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. What's the Apostle Paul saying there? Same thing he's saying in Philippians. The fact that they oppose you and afflict you is a sure sign, a proof of their coming destruction. And not only their coming destruction, but your salvation. Now that ought to encourage you. When you lose your job or you suffer mockery or ridicule, which we all do, we all go to work, we all face family and friends that are unsaved, co-workers and neighbors that are unsaved, and we all have to stand for the Lord and we're all faced with the decision to shut up or speak up, to sit down or stand up. All of us are faced with that decision. And when we speak up and we're mocked or we're ridiculed or we're hated or they respond with hostility or mockery or hatred toward us, it is an evidence to us and it ought to encourage us that that's proof of their destruction. Because God will afflict them for afflicting us. They say, that makes me sad. Well, it does in a sense, but it also ought to encourage you. Encourage you to know, okay, this, this is evidence that they are going to face the righteous judgment of God for what they have done. It's proof not only of their destruction, but it's also proof of your salvation. When you suffer tribulation, you ought to rejoice because you know that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom. Right? So if I'm suffering tribulation, then it's evidence to me that I'm saved. If I were of the world, the world would love me. Right? Anytime you come across a Christian whom the world loves, it ought to cause you to sort of sit back and say, okay, something must be wrong here. If the world loves its own and the world loves this person, why does the world love this person? Just recently, two people, both who, both who were notable, died. Jerry Falwell, and Tammy Faye Baker. I think it was Tammy Faye Baker. Is that right? Thomas is nodding yes, so he, that must be right. He, he followed her like all the time. So <laughs> Jerry Falwell, Tammy Faye Baker. When Jerry Falwell died, they, they hadn't even put the sheet over his head before the waves of vitriolic hatred came in from every segment of our society, from the homosexual lobby, the environmentalist lobby, liberal Democrats, everybody. The entire world hated that guy. When Tammy Faye Baker died, the websites could not contain the amount of fawning love and adoration for her from every segment of the world. Homosexual, liberal, everything. And I looked at that and I had to ask myself, what in the world is going on here? You have to examine yourself when the world loves you. When the world loves any Christian, you have to stop and say, what is going on here? Jesus said that if we're not of the world, but we're chosen out of the world, the world would hate us. But the world loves its own. And the more worldly you are, the more the world will love you. And the more godly you are, the more the world will hate you. 
It's just the way it is. And the more the world hates you, the more evidence it is that you're saved. That's why Paul says it's a proof or an evidence of your salvation. So the more you're hated, somebody says, I hate you and I hate your church and I hate your confession of faith and I hate everything you stand for. You ought to rejoice and say, hey, that's the best evidence I could find of my salvation. That is great. That is good news. And Paul's encouraging them. Hostility that you face is an evidence of their destruction. It's an evidence of your salvation. So you ought to look at the hostility and say that proves two things. It proves that they're going to be destroyed and it proves that I'm going to be saved. It proves that I'm not of the world. Because if I were of the world, the world would love me. But if the world hates me, then it must be that the world hates Jesus. And because I look like Jesus, then the world hates me. Look at the end of verse 28. The Apostle Paul says, and that from God. What's the that? Something in this text is from God. What is it that's from God? In reality, it's the whole, everything that's preceded it in verse 27 to 28. The suffering, the opposition, the opponents, the hostility, all of that was from God. The proof of their salvation, the proof of their destruction was from God. The ability to stand, the ability to strive, and the ability to be steady are all from God as well. The Apostle Paul says, I want to hear that you're standing firm, that you're striving together, and that you're steady in the face of opposition. Because that's going to be a sign that the unbelievers are going to be destroyed and that believers will be saved. And all of that is from God. Do you ever thank God that you stand? Do you ever thank God that you never walk away from Him? That you haven't abandoned Him? That you haven't deserted Him? That you haven't denied Him? Do you know who you have to thank for that? That's from God. That's from God. You and I would abandon Him if left to ourselves in a heartbeat. Aren't you glad that it's God who's reserved your inheritance for you and that you're kept by the power of God through faith for that salvation ready to be revealed at the last time? That's 1 Peter chapter 1. Aren't you glad that that's the case and that the Lord has not left you to hold on to Him? I'm thankful for that. You think we're going to get to heaven and we're all going to pat ourselves on the back and say, I sure did a good job down there. I sure stood strong. Here, will you pat me on the back because my arm is tired. I've been patting myself on the back for 10,000 years. No, we're all going to get to heaven and we're all going to say, praise be to God that we were able to stand strong, that we were able to, to be steady and that we were able to strive together because all of that is a gift of His grace. But specifically, the Apostle Paul is not just talking about those things, although it's included, but there are two specific things that the Apostle Paul says are gifts from God. Do you know what they are? There's two general things that he's been talking about in this whole passage, and they are this. Number one, salvation, and number two, suffering. First, salvation, and then suffering. Now, how do I know that that's what the Apostle Paul is saying is a gift from God? I'll tell you how I know that. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted not only to believe on Jesus, but to suffer for His name's sake. There are two gifts that you've been given. Salvation and suffering. God has granted it to you not only to believe on Christ for His sake, but also to suffer for His name's sake. Two wonderful, glorious, marvelous gifts. Now the one we love. The second we're not too hot about, right? It's the suffering that we don't like. That's the gift nobody wants. We're going to look at those two gifts. We're going to flesh out what does it mean that we have been granted salvation to believe on Christ and that we have been granted the gift of suffering. We're going to look at that next week. I want to ask you this in closing. What is your response to the Gospel? Do you know that through the preaching of the Gospel and through the presentation of the Gospel that God does something? He marks out those who are His and those who are not His. 
those who believe and those who don't believe, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. And you can have somebody who's very religious, and you'll run into them all the time. You start presenting the gospel to them, and they'll say, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus never condemned anybody. I believe Jesus was all loving. I believe Jesus wouldn't send anybody to hell. He's a great Jesus. He's my friend. He's my pal. He's my boyfriend, my girlfriend. I talk to him quite often. He's a great guy. I think he's awesome. I believe in him. Everything is good. And then you start to present to them the gospel and what the gospel is. Do you know that you're a sinner, that you violated God's law, that you have, you have um, offended him with your sin, and that there's only one way to salvation is through Jesus Christ, and if you reject him by rep- and don't repent of your faith and place your faith in him, that you will spend eternity separated from him in a place of torment and punishment for your sin? You start to tell them that, and you know what you'll find? Hostility and opposition. Boy, they'll hate you. They'll oppose you. And you know what God is doing? Through the presentation of the gospel, he's showing those who are his and those who are not his. If they respond with hostility, it's proof of their destruction. If they respond by embracing and loving and defending the truth, then it is proof of their salvation. Through the preaching of the gospel, the Lord marks out those who belong to him and those who don't. And I ask you this morning, how do you respond to the gospel? What have you done with the gospel? Have you believed on Christ for salvation? Or is it to you something that's a real quaint fairy tale, a nice Christian story, a good religious myth, something that works for the guy in the pew next to you, but not necessarily for you? If that's how you feel about the gospel, friends, then it's evident of your destruction. But if you have embraced and loved, and if the gospel is for you everything, then it's evidence of your salvation. It's proof of your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that which has saved us, that by which we are purchased and bought, We thank you that you have bestowed the gift of faith and the love and grace of our God upon us. Thank you that you do not impute to us our sin, but that you impute to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We ask God this morning that if there's anybody here who has never responded to your gracious offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that you would work upon their hearts and bring them to a knowledge of the truth, that they might have the faith to believe that and trust in Christ for salvation that you would glorify yourself here in our midst. We thank you for this time of communion which we are about to enjoy, and we ask your blessing upon it, upon us as we leave here, to the glorious, to, to all to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.